This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Welcome back, everyone. What's up? Nick Larson with the Project Upland podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We've got a great show for you today. Cool interview on late season ruffed grouse hunting. Something that I think you will enjoy, find informative, find valuable and useful in some of your late season pursuits. As we uh, sort of hit the pause button here in the Midwest and deer seasons are either underway, firearm deer seasons that is, are either underway or about to begin. Kind of marks a significant point in the grouse hunting season and afterwards the game changes a little bit. Not too much, which you will find out and learn on our interview today, but it does change a little bit and fortunately the person that I had on and spoke with a couple days ago is very knowledgeable on the subject and she has plenty to share. So it's a little bit longer episode this week. Uh, it's hard to cut a conversation short with this particular guest and so you might have to take this episode in, in pieces. Uh, ultimately, I am trying to keep these under an hour. This one definitely is not. Uh, so apologies for that if you're if you were hoping for that, but uh, I do think that it's a it's a neat conversation, and like I said, I think you'll find it valuable and hopefully learn something. And if you do, please let us know. Again, always appreciate the feedback that we get for the Project Upland podcast, and we hope that continues. Uh, so that's about all I have. I did a little bit of hunting last week, kind of a. My final hunt before I take to the deer woods a little bit this coming weekend and maybe the following weekend. Had an awesome grouse hunt 
uh, last Sunday, snuck out just myself, just me and the dog. We hit one spot and flushed some birds, bagged a couple. I don't really need to say anything more than that. It was uh, it was kind of the perfect farewell to the uh, to the first part of the grouse season for me, and I look forward to hopefully getting in a little bit more uh, as we as we enter the late season phase of the 2017 grouse hunting season. Uh, all right, so my guest today is Ann Jandernaugh. She is the owner and operator, along with her partner Skip, owner and operator of Northwind Enterprises. If you're not familiar with them, they are known for making uh, grouse habitat maps, a.k.a. they sell maps that show a lot of things, most importantly here in the Great Lakes states, uh, aspen cutting. But wherever you are, wherever the maps are available, they will show you the timber cuttings. And they do so uh, in a very easy to read and easy to understand way, providing you with ages of timber cuts, the year that it was cut, the, uh, the amount of acres that it was cut. Basically, any information that was available to Northwind is available to you through various products, be it printed maps, um, PDF versions, chips for your GPS, or their new online subscription, Scout and Hunt, which I love. I've been using that for the past two seasons now, and I really enjoy it. I have, like I said, I've been using Northwind Maps for two or three years now, and more recently, I've switched over to pretty much all the Scout and Hunt subscription service for both. I use it in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and it's been phenomenal for me. Uh, we don't talk about that a lot on today's episode, so we'll have to have Ann back on to talk more about that. If you have questions, feel free to uh, to reach out to Northwind and or myself. Be happy to help you out with that. But uh, I think that's all I'm going to say before Ann joins us to talk about late season rough grouse hunting. So again, I hope you enjoy this particular show. I hope you're enjoying the Project Upland podcast. Don't forget to uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. If you're uh, if you're into the show, and uh, let us know let us know what you'd like to see in future episodes. So with that said, uh, let's cut right to the chase and get on to today's episode with our guest Anne Jandrana of Northwind Enterprises. All right, Anne, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? Doing great, just fine. Excellent, excellent. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly a pleasure having you on the uh, the Project Upland podcast tonight and uh looking forward to talking some late season grouse hunting uh have you uh have you been out in the woods lately uh dog training and i'm finding some birds i'm not shooting the birds because i could but i'm trying to save them for dog training <laughs> all right all right so that so you're trying to uh you're trying to keep your covers full so you've got uh you got some birds for the dogs to work for for the rest of the season yep. and, and into next year. That's correct. Well, that's correct. And then the other thing too is you know, um, you know, a lot of stuff. A lot of the birds that you hunt now is you have a higher percent chance. And this is just me personally, of you know, shooting a hen than you do a, a male, because most of the groups that you're finding right now have a higher percentage of hens. So I guess, you know, we all make our choices, you know, and, and I, I'm a dog trainer, 
So the more do- more birds I can get my dogs on, and the more context, and the quicker I can have my context with a bird, the quicker that dog all of a sudden it clicks. You know, you're there. So every once in a while you got to drop one for them. But the other half of this is I'm not the best shot, so this birds are pretty safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I know I know that feeling. I'm uh, I don't consider myself a I mean, I guess I, I have, I've called myself a terrible shot in, in recent years, but I, I know I have uh, more potential in me, but it's, uh, it can, do I exercise that potential in the field? It, it got better this season, but uh, it's a, it's a work, in, work in progress. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so many times, you know, the crazy part is I'm carrying the gun with me and everything, uh, but what's in my pocket is a camera. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm taking pictures of the dog when I should be getting ready to shoot. You know, I was just like, you know, enamored with the point and the setting and the lighting and all that. And and uh, but you know, I'll at least fire off a shot for noise effect. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I uh, much much the same. I uh, I definitely take a lot more pictures in the spring when 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 the gun is not with me. But I've uh, I've been caught red-handed a couple times taking pictures of. Uh, dog on point usually usually if there's a woodcock on the ground and i can see it i'll i try to get oh, that yeah. picture you know with the dog pointing the woodcock and i'm not as concerned as if the bird flushes but always when it does it seems like it's a great shot and then you're left with that feeling like wow i uh probably could have shot that bird <laughs> <laughs> so it goes right back to the saying it's about the dog <laughs> yes Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, we kind of jumped right into things. I wanted to, I want to touch on something real quick because you are uh, you're full of interesting information that I'm not not uh, always privy to. Why is it that we have a higher chance of shooting a hen rough grouse this time of year? What what's the dynamics there? Well, this isn't a short answer thing, so bear with me. Okay. Um, and actually. I'm going to give you the long answer, and I'll lay it out. So you first go back to springtime. Let's back up to then. The males have their anywhere from 8 to 11, roughly, maybe even 12 acres that they call home. Their home needs to support them year-round. That year-round is spring, summer, winter, fall. Food, cover, safety, everything. They lose that, they shift. Yeah. And that male habitat, that's going to support them. So the hen, you know, after mating with the male and then laying the eggs and and there's the hatch and everything, she goes to what's called the brood range, and that's away from where the male is. And that's got a really good canopy. It's consistent. Um, You know, those chicks can move around in there and be protected uh, from avian predators and typically with the right canopy you have the right floor so it's not a bunch of weeds because they're not pheasants. So the chicks grow up, fall comes. Uh, you hear the drumming in the fall which is territorial. It's not for mating. Mating's in the spring. Fall drumming's territorial. And the males are drumming because the other ma- young males are saying, hey, I want your spot and they're saying, heck no, get out of here and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So another male looks at this guy's spot, and he says, you know, I think I can acquire just about the same structure that you have in your spot. And instinctively, next thing you know, you've been out at places, and you're like, oh, there's a drummer here. There's one here. 
oh, there's one down over here. You know, you can hear it. So all of yeah. a sudden you might hear four or five in an area. Well, nature, these birds are programmed, especially next to the hens now, after the young males have set up their spots in the fall. The hens are like, okay, uh, no more salad on the ground. Frost come in. You know, the leaves are down. The green is gone. And we're switching into, you know, catkins and, and buds and things like that. i got to find a place that's going to protect me all winter. Well, nature's programmed them to then move in and amongst the males. And they shift. And Harry hates Bill. Bill hates, you know, Jerry. Jerry hates Phil and so forth. So these males have their own little, little they have their own little kingdom. And so the hens are like right around for us here. It happens somewhere between the second and third week, and up in this area here of, of October. Of October or okay, of October, yep. Of October. Yep. So now the hens are shifting. So you see a regrouping. These males aren't going to group together. They don't like each other, but the hens don't care. They just move around. And how many times have you got in? You just start getting multiple flushes. Yep. Late season. They're primarily hens. That's not to say they aren't in some male's domain and the male is in there, which is typically hens. So in the early part of the season, the males are on the move. You end up getting typically warm males harvested. And toward the end of the season, you have more hens. And uh, so you have to think about it. An area, say you go in there and you get four or five flushes, and you keep coming back to that place, and you keep coming back to that place, and eventually you're whittling it down to maybe one or two birds. And there's a real, you know, you, you can wipe an area out. Um, you know, some people say, oh, well, they'll come back. Well, you know, the spring might be bad that next year, or you need the number of birds to populate areas. You know, and you need yeah. good weather. You need everything. So you just sort of have to think about, for me, it's dog work and having the bird numbers to work my dogs. I don't, I'm to the point in age that I don't have to shoot a lot to be happy, but I would rather shoot to reward the dogs. And when I was younger, it was how many I could get. And as you get older, for some reason, I have no idea, it changes sometimes. Um, you know, and for me, it did. And that's why that explanation there, the hens move back in in amongst the males and habitat that will support a grouse year round. There's your long story. Excellent, excellent. Well, yeah, that's uh, I certainly uh, I hadn't really thought about those dynamics in that in that fashion. So it's interesting to hear about. And yeah, that's uh, that's what we're here to talk about on the podcast tonight is sort of the transitioning of the season and and uh, with. You know, with deer seasons kicking up across the Great Lakes states, Minnesota's going on right now. Wisconsin starts in a couple of weeks, and uh, kind of uh, looking into that second half of the season, if you will. I know for a lot of people, right. a lot of people, it's kind of the firearms deer season signals the end of of the grouse season. For for me, not so much. I'm not a real. I wouldn't consider myself a real diehard late season guy, but I lo- sure love to get out and uh, get a few more hunts right. in before before we settle it down for the year. So, um, right. yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's 
since we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about the late season, let's get your perspective as someone that spends a lot of time in the woods. And you're out of Wisconsin. Um, I talked about that in the intro to the show. Um, but for somebody that spends a lot of time in the in the woods, the grouse woods, what was your perspective on uh, on the season this year? What did you, you know? What did you see here? feel, smell, out in the woods, you know, your perspective. Everybody knows the drumming counts were up and, and the hunting reports were all over the board, but I just want to get your perspective on, you know, kind of what you what you felt like the woods uh, the woods offered you this year. Um, it all depended on where you were. And unfortunately, most of where I, what I had to deal with around here, if you, okay, here's a little secret here. Go to NOAA, look or type in in Google or whatever your search engine is, go to historical monthly rainfalls. And yeah. it's a real eye-opener because you can look at your particular area and your state and you can zoom into an area and you can look at critical May, look at June, July, August, all those, and you can see how much rain hit certain areas. Now, I printed out May. I printed out June. July was normal pretty much here in August. And we had kind of flooding. So definitely hit the first hatch. Probably hit a lot of the second hatch. Um, and I just, I knew before we started that there was going to be a problem. And looking at the dynamics of rainfall and the changes you can go back to 2005, and from 2005, it's either 2011 or 2012, there's been a change in the way, in the amount of rain we receive in the spring. So for the last four to five years, we've had an increased amount of rainfall, at least up in my area. You know, Glidden is north of Park Falls. Yeah. And, and so... The point being is, is I knew it wasn't going to be good anyways or that great. And the reason is, is because our hatches have been compromised for quite a few years now. So you start dealing with birds that run more. But then on the second part of it is, is that when you keep losing hatches and hatch after hatch after hatch, you start dealing with these adult birds, and they're tough. They're really tough to hunt because the bottom of the food chain is the rough grouse and the snowshoe hare. Mm-hmm. And if if you don't have as many snowshoe hare, then they're doing double, triple time on the grouse. And um, you know, I've seen I'm seeing rabbit tracks, which that may sound silly that you would be looking for that. But I only see rabbit tracks where I find a lot of birds. Yeah, I'm not seeing it where I only see one or two. Yeah, so, yeah. You mentioned. You, know, you mentioned. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm fine. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, we 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 chatted last week, and and you mentioned that. I thought that was really interesting. You know, I was telling you about a cover that I was hunting, and you asked me, did I see? Was I seeing a lot of snowshoe hares? And I kind of thought anecdotally in my mind that I was. I did see a couple of snowshoe hares in that cover, and 
long story short, point being that that when you have snowshoe hares in a given area, the birds are less of a target. Not not that they're not a target, right. but but that that predation is getting dispersed amongst the snowshoe hares and the birds, and so there was you know possibly right. some correlation there with with the flushes that I was getting. So that was really interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that before either. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And so when you have an area that's had persistent rains in the spring, it affects more than just grouse. I mean, it can affect the woodcock and other animals and such. Mm-hmm. But it changes. It literally changes your balance. Um, it'll change your balance of what age of a bird that you're dealing with and how they act and react. Because um, less birds, hey, you know, they're out to survive, and they're going to be wily. Um, so there was a couple areas I went that were a lot better. And it's just, um, you know, if there's not enough birds, it's frustrating. But but even when you're hunting and you got to keep point, reestablish point, point, reestablish point, I mean, it took really good dog work. Um and the birds were running really bad. But then I was in some other areas that, you know, there was like these little pockets that every once in a while you'd find. But for every one person that I heard say it was great, there was a whole slug of other people that said, oh, my word, what happened? But go back and look at the monthly historical rainfalls. And I think it will be really enlightening to people to see what areas haven't been hit hard and it's something to think about you know because it it, it you know you're not going to gain back in one year typically unless you have the everything comes together and it's perfect you know and they all have like seven or eight to a brood you know mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but this type of recovery will take a while so that's I don't know if I answered what you were asking about, but that's what I saw. Um, I was up in Canada, and, you know, I had birds in some areas that ran, and some areas the birds didn't run. But they, they had an early, you know, a late snowfall. So that was, you know, they had some tough times there, too. So it, that's, it depends on, I mean, I heard of people over in Segola area and, and Crystal Falls and other areas over there that, Somehow, you know, they had a good season. I've heard of other places, you know, where everything, the stars aligned, and it was great. It just depends on where you were at. Yeah. So that's. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think I would I would certainly echo some of the things that that you brought up in that. Number one, for the most part, I kind of like you said for every one person that that had a great season, and you know I. Season is a subjective word too, because part of the social media age, you know, you can log on and you can see somebody saying bird numbers seem great, and but you don't necessarily know that maybe they were out for two days and had two awesome days in the woods when mm-hmm. you've you've been out every single weekend and you have maybe a larger sample size or maybe a smaller sample size. It's just certain variables that you don't always get the whole story, and so you have to keep that in consideration. But yeah, I think the the reports from people that that random people and people that I know and trust in general the felt felt that the birds were down for sure 
Um, but again, there's always pockets. There's always better areas. And fortunately, the last couple of weeks, I've found a couple of better areas and pockets, and the hunting has improved. So there is that. Uh, I wanted to mention you talked about the rainfalls, and you mentioned the website. It's NOAA, NOAA.gov. I can't remember what that stands for. It's National Oceanic Atmosphere Association, maybe. I'm just guessing. But, uh, <laughs> NOAA.gov. And I. I, I think that's that's something that for the rainfall I always I we have these anecdotal conversations like oh yeah I think I think there was a lot of rain this year but I I never went and actually looked and checked these areas I think that'd be a really interesting thing for me to do and check all the different areas that I hunted and see what what those historic rainfalls did because yeah that what a way to put it into perspective and see if what you what you felt and saw is actually you know, a result of, of some historical data there. So that that would be something for people to check out for sure. Oh, it is. It's quite a tool. And, um, you know, you can really start to, you know, analyze areas even more. Um, but with that being said, there's areas that even within having had this rain, this much rainfall, the pockets I know of that haven't had pressure from people hold birds still. And I just think when when you've had a bad, bad spring, um, your birds basically, if they get the pressure from predators during the summertime and then they get the pressure in the fall, it's really hard to maintain a, you know, a covert basically, because it, it can get depleted pretty quick. And and so sometimes trying to find those pockets where you're hoping that no one's been into, you know, is really helpful. Yeah, that's, yep, sure. That's the, easier said sometimes than done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, it's a it's a rising tide floats all boats, and when, when you have those boom years, the – the marginal cover and and all that other stuff is going to hold birds that it's typically not going to on a year like this where you just you've got right. to be in the prime you got to be in the prime habitat and you've got to maybe be a little bit lucky and and hope that maybe somebody hadn't been in there for a couple of weeks and you know one of those kind of mm-hmm. things so that's uh, right. a lot of that stuff gets exposed and then to your point about the running birds I mean that's that's really interesting how yeah if you I'm I'm always big on that in in that the everybody looks at the drumming counts because it's something to talk about. But I've always felt, at least in the last you know five ten years, where I've sort of gotten to this point in my grouse hunting stage, I guess is is that the the hatch can have a, certainly can have a more pronounced effect on what hunters see and feel out in the woods because again you're hunting if you have a really good hatch you have those juvenile birds out there and and they're a lot easier to encounter and a lot easier to hunt than than a a mature bird that that's going to hear a dog bell or or get pointed and take off you know without even having any additional pressure than that so that that makes a huge difference whether the birds are holding or running for sure drumming counts and there'll be people that'll argue with me, but think about That's when okay. it's happening. You know, it's basically you're looking at the male's habitat, okay? Yeah. And he's drumming. And he's drumming to attract a female. 
The other thing that can run up drumming counts is if there's females present. The the old the school of thought with Gordon Gillian when he was you know writes about it every three to four minutes they will drum. If a hen is nearby, you know, no hen could be four minute or eight minute or whatever. You know, it's typically a four minute interval. So if he's alone, he's not got anyone challenging him. He can't hear it, you know. Yeah. Uh, they might answer another drummer. But if there's hens, he's going to drum to beat the band and then some. And one of the things back then is they did not have deer camps and things like that. And what happens, and I've got it on, I've got some of them where they're, you know, every, you know, three minutes they're drumming. And it doesn't take long for one bird to run the numbers up. Yeah. And then the key is whether or not your drumming counts are good is what does that area do the next year and the next year. There's there's typically a, I don't know how they account for it and everything, but if you take the counts and there's a big swing, somehow there should be an accountability for that. Um, because let's just say, for instance, the normal for like a, one of the routes in Lincoln County in Wisconsin was somewhere between mid-40s to mid-60s. It's been that way for a lot of years. And then all one year, it went up to 130, somewhere up in there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, I don't. that's just crazy, crazy huge. You'd call that but a liar, really. But was it factored in? Was anything adjusted? That would yeah. be the question. Yeah. And then that was a year it was up 25%, and then it, next year it was down 25%, and they called it an anomaly. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think drumming counts have to, you know, the people that are taking the drumming counts are doing everything they're supposed to do, yeah. and they're hearing, they're hearing what they're hearing, they're doing, I mean, they're volunteers. It's You cannot fault them one iota for what they're doing. But it's what you do with the data afterwards and what these birds are doing so that they hear, you know, what, for, for what the volunteer is hearing. And some of these, like that same year, we had three or four days prior to when they took to when – I started really hearing the drumming that it was horrible weather, just horrible weather. And it got past April 18th, which is sort of like a magic number, uh, magic date for these birds. You know, I always hear drumming by then. You know, yeah. and it's, it's like, and they, it's like the whole grouse world was in a holding pattern. Hmm. Can't go out, it's too wet, the wind's blowing, it's nasty out, nothing happening. The first night, nice day. There were birds all over the place, and there was drumming going on, and everyone's like, you know, if I was the grass, finally, the weather broke. I can go see Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. But, you know, the thing is, is that 
everything leading up to there, you would have thought nothing was happening. And then it broke loose big time. And I remember being at the coffee shop and someone says, have you seen all the birds <laughs> all over the place? But <laughs> they were backed up. They were waiting. They were in the holding pattern. So yeah. if you were a volunteer doing a drumming count on that day, it was probably off the charts. Yep. So your weather leading up to that drumming count can even make a difference. But the biggest thing to take away from all this is that, to me, the drumming counts are showing, um, yep, we had males that survived. Um, you might have picked up a few extra ones, but it's hard. There's no factor in there for when one particular guy is, or even you hit a spot. Let's say you hit a spot, and everyone's drumming every three minutes. You know, yeah. How do you how do you factor that one in? Yeah, and, yeah, and I'm not finding fault with it, but I'm just saying this is things that need to be thought about. Yep, I think uh, it's yeah. To I totally agree. You know, they are they are what they are, and there's a lot of variables in it. And I sort of put the onus on the hunter to understand what the drumming counts right. are. Right. You know, un understand what they are, what they're surveying, and then set your expectations accordingly. You know, and and I'm not saying I even I don't think I even I hear about fair weather fans like they'll. If the drumming counts are up or down, they'll they'll decide whether or not they're going to hunt. I don't know if that's even true because I didn't hear an overwhelming amount of people that didn't really understand the drumming counts. But I know not everybody does, and so again, it's up to the hunter to understand what those drumming counts are, what they're surveying, and what it ultimately is going to mean in in the fall. And if you set your expectations accordingly, it's you know they are what they are. They don't have to be anything more or anything less. Well, and I think that's where it's really hard. Those of us that have been playing this game for long enough or wherever this sport, we realize what it is. There's yeah. no guarantee. And really, the most important thing is the brood and the survival of the brood. But if you're someone that's new and you're seeing it in the Milwaukee Journal, you're mm -hmm. seeing the county touted, you're seeing it in other publications touting that, the drumming counts are up, you know. Yeah. It's going to yeah, be a yeah. banner year, you know, off the charts, best in whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think there needs to be a caveat or something in there that's saying, hey, with all this being said, this is still only just one very, very, very small piece of the puzzle. Yes. You know, there's yeah. so much more that needs to happen. Yep. Yep, yep, and I guess yeah, it's, so, it's something that uh, that you and I have learned over time, as well as a lot of other people. And so I guess yeah, it's a uh, well. Hopefully, maybe uh, maybe if there's anybody listening to this, and uh, we educated <laughs> we educated a few more people <laughs> tonight, so we did our yeah. we did our good good deed. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So yeah, we we'll put the drumming counts to bed for now, but uh, let's. I want to talk about, we kind of have a list of uh, discussion topics that you and I went over last week, but let's just go right away, maybe high level, and you can get down as, as uh, deep as you want to, but, but habitat shifts. I think uh, many, many grouse hunters know, but others probably do not know, the grouse, they change their habitat throughout the season, throughout the year, really. Um, so you can touch on that a little bit, but let's try to focus on, you know, where the birds were in October and where they're going to be in, in the second half of November and December. Okay. 
the males aren't shifting unless their habitat's destroyed. So yeah. the the hens are shifting into the male habitat. Now the male habitat is going to have a combination of you know things that are really important to him. Um, he's going to have to have pines. He's going to have to have conifers. Um, now these conifers are the type that they can get underneath it, and it's the type that you would kneel down and look, and you can see straight across. Mm-hmm. And it's where the snow snow doesn't accumulate. Nice dry environment protects them from the wind and shelter. And one tree typically isn't enough. You got to have a cluster of them. And typically they're not old trees; they're younger trees. Where you know we've all had it where the dog goes on point, and you're looking down this line of pines and thinking, "I know where he went." Okay, mm-hmm. can the dog hold here? And I'm going to tiptoe down to the end, but I'm not going to put too much pressure on the pines and then I'll release the dog and the dog goes goes through the pines hopefully either locks on point bird hopefully comes out on my side and I can shoot so they need this grouping of pines for both weather protection uh, when they get heavy snows on them it also drops these uh, branches down even lower and forms a thermal area for them and so they've got the pines then they need an area for, you know, like the male aspen buds are something that these birds like. Um, they're actually the male aspen bud is more nutritious than the female aspen bud, uh, higher carbohydrate, protein, and fat than the female. And the males, the, the aspen trees are either male or female. So you don't need to go around and look and say, well, is that one, what sex is that aspen tree? Basically, these birds will be in an area that, you know, maybe they're eating a male aspen bud, or maybe they're into buds from yellow birch. I've seen them even on uh, sugar maple. Um, and then also, you know, there's just other trees like ironwood, which is in the understory of hardwoods. Uh, it's a junk tree, but they really like those uh, catkins up there. Hmm. Now, distance is a big thing. It's one-stop shopping. you got to find the Walmart for the grouse woods. And what it I is, like is, yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. they go down, they say, okay, we're going to spend the night down around the pines here. We're protected, and, you know, I can sort of peek out from underneath there and see if anything's happening, and I'm nestled in, and the wind's going over the top of me, and the snow is falling, and so so forth. Okay, I need to get food in the morning. What side are these pines on? Uh, I think I'll sit under the pines for a while. Let the sun, as it comes up, angles in just under those pines and warm me up. Okay, I need to get to the food. It's easier if I just walk over to the food where, Mm -hmm. you know, on my, you know, across the snow. I need a secondary understory. Hazelbrush, American or beet hazelbrush. I'll wander through there, but oh, while I'm wandering through there, nothing can really come down on me because it's so thick. And oh, by the way, it's got food for me, catkins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then they can go in there and they can feed, and maybe they get into, they hang out for a while up in an area, another area that's got a cluster of pines. And it's very short distances. And part of that reason that they need everything in one area is, I believe it's like 20 degrees or less, they start burning fat. 
And these birds okay. don't carry much fat into the wintertime. And so if they don't have a lot of snow, they're under a pine or there's what they call it, like a snow burrow. I've seen them actually sit down in it. And, uh, you know, but they're, they're getting the sun. Um, anything to cut the wind or to protect them, if they get into the snow, then they've got, you know, like 12 to 14 inches and they dive in and they offset themselves 10 to 15 feet to keep away from predators. Uh, predator sticks his nose in the hole, but the bird is over, you know, 10 to feet off, offset. So they need a combination. You need, you need food sources that will last you through the winter. You need protection. You need an open area because they're not going to snow, you know, dive into the snow in the middle of the hazel brush. Typically, it could be a meadow. It could be an old logging trail where the snow will build up. But they need they need that protection from the elements, but they also need food. But they cannot be doing it in two to three to four flushes. It's one flush or less. And it's where common habitat comes together. Uh, upland, conifer, older aspen, um, you know, all this stuff starts to come, come together. And hazelbrush, at least for up here, Yep. comes together in one area. And for anyone hunting some other area, always think about where you found the birds, what time of day, angle of the sun, what's your weather like, what was your weather, you know, before, you know, a few days beforehand, or yeah. what, is there a storm coming in? Most of the time they'll feed during October, and they're going to feed usually two hours before that storm. And then it's like as the closer the storm gets, the opportunity to work birds becomes less and less. That time is even farther out in the winter time. I've seen when the, when the temperature is going to plummet to like 20 below, I'll see birds feeding at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, not yeah. just before dusk. So those are just some things that conifers huge, but it needs to be the right type of conifers. It needs to be low to the ground, and a way for them to move around underneath there. And if hazel brush is right next to it, that's fantastic. And it's typically conifer that doesn't have the branches far apart where avian predator would sit. The branches are going to be closer together. And it's when you look underneath it, it's going to look dry. And one of the place ways to check this is take your dog out and watch the trees that the dog gets birdie on, you know, underneath those conifers. Then you yeah. start to learn about the stem density of the conifers, the size of the conifers, and how close to the ground the conifers are. You know, the the limbs. I'm trying to say. So. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so really, I mean, you know, it, it may seem obvious to some people, but again, you're looking for you're looking for those areas that the the grouse can find everything that he or she needs to, you know, hopefully, hopefully, and it makes total sense, you know, as far as evolution and nature is concerned, everything that, that they need to do to survive and expend the least amount of energy throughout uh, any given day. So that's, you know, getting, staying dry, staying out of the wind, getting that sun to warm them up if it's a sunny day and being able to, to get out there and feed without having to travel long distances and, and get back to those conifers or that that roosting area where they can spend the evening mm-hmm. um yeah it's one-stop shopping yeah so they so 
A couple things. The uh, you mentioned the the snow roost. I I am familiar with that. I didn't know. I guess I didn't know that. Uh, so they'll dive under the snow and then they will burrow offset. They'll burrow these ten to fifteen feet. I think you said either way, to, so the predator can't mm-hmm. just pop his head right down. I I didn't. Uh, right. I uh, didn't know that, but that's that's really interesting. That's sort of why sometimes they seem to come out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and and it's interesting. You know, you see. Well, here was a funny thing. You know, I have the dog yard up here in the woods. Um, there's blasted grouse that'll come in, and here I've got bird dogs, and they're feeding in a tree right over the kennel. <laughs> and they're just, you know, and the, dog, the dogs are like, oh, look at that, you know. <laughs> and, and and then they, they, they have, they've been, when there's a lot of snow, they dive in behind the kennel into the snow. And I'll find the holes where they come out, you know. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I've got bird dogs in here. <laughs> <laughs> grouse right over their bio. Talk about and, teasing uh, them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, teasing them and that. And, but it's it's they're just a really interesting bird. I mean, they're they're every trick in the book they've got to use in order to, or in order to survive. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, you, you we touched on it before. They're they are the bottom of the food chain. Everything everything loves grouse, including you and I. And and that's why mm-hmm. that's why they've developed all these tactics and techniques to survive. It's, it's 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 definitely what's fascinated me about the bird for for a long time and continues to do so. Uh, the other thing with the snow roost, I remember a couple a few years ago, I was up northern Minnesota scouting. We took a spring trip up to a buddy's hunting camp where I deer hunt, and we had two objectives. One, we wanted to uh, scout in the spring for deer uh, for the following deer season, and two, we wanted to put some cameras and get some pictures of uh, grouse on drumming logs. And uh, so we did that, and uh, the uh, what I was going to touch on is we were out walking some of these clear cuts, big, huge clear cuts in the Superior National Forest, and... I was amazed. I look as I looked around out in the middle of these clear cuts. You can I've come to know as as many people probably have. You can find where a grouse has been snow roosting in the winter because you'll see a pile of droppings, right. and it's very right. once you once you notice it and you know what it is, it'll it sticks out like a sore thumb. And I could not believe the amount. And, and this is typically an area with a lot of grouse, so I mean I get it. But all over this huge clear cut, all over, uh, everywhere I looked, there was piles of grouse droppings. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same grouse and roosting every single night, if there's just that many grouse. I mean, it was it was unbelievable, really, to see how many snow roosts there were in the, in this clear cut. How many, um, uh, how much drumming was in there? Uh, drumming, meaning yeah. when, well, I mean, so we were... Yeah, we, where we were where we were monitoring the drumming was a different location. I mean, as the crow flies, okay. it was only a, only a couple miles away, but uh, okay. we had we had cameras set up on drumming logs <laughs> behind the behind the cabin, and then uh, where we were okay. scouting for for deer it was a separate area. So, well, it was in, it would be interesting if that was a you know obviously it was a winter area for them, but yes. it's just surprising when you and some of these males they make a circuit. You know, and you'll see drag tip marks in the snow. 
where they mm-hmm. drag their wings on the yeah. outer edges. And you really, what's interesting is, is that the crazy part is they'll seem to do their dropping sometimes in the same area. And, and it's like, well, whoever that has been through here a few times, you know, and then, <laughs> yeah, and, then yeah. and then sometimes you'll see a predator dropping not far away. You know, sure. Yep. It's just, you're, you're able to read the signs and sort of get a feel for what's happening, you know, in that particular area. Yeah, I mean, observation, that's that's got to be the, the hunter's number one number one uh, attribute, really, is, is the power of observation and paying attention to what's going right. on around you. And, you know, again, when we have our dogs out there, paying, paying attention to what that dog is doing and, and the areas that it gets birdie. And, I mean, I've, I had been grouse hunting for a long time before I got my first bird dog. I'm now three three years into my bird dog. Boy, I have learned more in the last three years, I think, than I learned in probably the first right. the first twenty plus years combined just because, you know, I'm hunting a completely different way and following that dog through the cover, it wow, they teach you so much about the birds and, and where they want to be. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, well, let's see. We talked about uh, we talked about what what the makings of good winter habitat are. Um, how does how does weather play a part in maybe? I have a feeling the way that we talked about this is maybe weather playing a part in in you making the determination uh, to go hunting. You know, we talked about the cold and when when the birds can start to get really stressed at low temperatures. So, how does weather play a part in late season hunting? Well, when you compare late season with early season or mid season, I guess you could call it. Um, late season, your hours of operation are not quite as long as what it would be in October, because um, it takes a little while, you know, sort of for them to really start moving. It's like the sun, you know, they'll they'll sit on the east side with the sun of the pines where the sun will hit them. And if they get spooked, then they, they basically retreat back in uh, unless you push them out. Uh, the colder the temperature, the less they come out, the less they're actually moving. Um, the days where you've had multiple storms, just no different than during October, or early November when you've had multiple storms, you know, that next nice day, you know, it's time to, you know, do something. Uh, a lot of times if it's bitter cold in the morning, they may offset not have a feeding that morning and do a major feeding in the afternoon. Um, but even that, you know, 20, 20 minutes is about the feeding time. So that can be hard to narrow that down when that 20 minutes is going to be uh, winds. You need to be out of the wind because that's what that bird's going to be. It's out of the wind. Uh, Let the winds go over the top of you and be down where it's quiet. Um, You know, the uh, uh, snowfall, light snowing, you know, not too much. You know, really a light, you know, how you see just a few flakes. But if it's snowing, decent, sit, sit at home, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Don't don't waste your time. You need a nice day. You, you just need a nice day. You know, you're not going to rush out at eight or nine o'clock. You might rush out somewhere between ten to twelve, depending on the temperature. And then maybe another one between oh 
1.30 to 3.30, somewhere in there. Uh, you know, because it, it gets dark early. Uh, yep. You might hit 4, 4.30, something like that. But it all depends on how cold is it going to get that night. And, you know, temperatures above zero are not a problem. But when it starts doing that sub-zero stuff or if you add a wind to it, feeding yep. um, is going to be quick. And, uh, you know, and the thing is, they're not going to sit up in these trees, you know, eating buds and catkins and be up there a long time feeding. Mm -hmm. It's like, I got to do it, get it over and get out. I mean, out of sight, out of mind, you know, for any predator, you know. And the hazel brush actually gives them a little longer feeding and lounging than what you would normally think because they're so protected in that. But you're going to need pines. You need to know their habitat, and they need to be pines nearby. And going back to the drumming, if you know where the drummers are, you know where to hunt late season. Two or three two drummers, I wouldn't bother with it, unless you're in the upswing of the year, you know, of the cycle, I should say. You can find places with three to six or whatever. Those are going to be major areas for um, the hens to regroup in amongst those areas. And by doing your drumming counts in the spring, you know where to hunt in late season. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. If you're, uh, if you're paying attention, if you're out in the woods in the spring, paying attention to where those drummers are. And if you hear, yeah, if you're standing in one spot and you hear from all three directions, you might, uh, you might want to throw a pin down on the GPS at that spot for sure. Right. And mark it how many you heard, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. You know, and then what I would say is if you go back to that spot around some, roughly around the same, it's no different than the people who are doing the drumming counts, but they're trying to get a feel on how many birds. What you're trying to do is determine how much prime late season habitat is here and the more, and, and that the, the birds that are there are feeling safe because, you know, if you got, like I said, three to six drummers in an area, it's obviously a pretty safe place because look what got them through the winter time. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So, you know, have your list of places you want to go check out in the spring, and then start evaluating those for late season. Excellent. So, uh, the let's let's uh, let's transition a little bit. We've talked a lot about. Uh, birds, um, and we may come back to that, but I want to talk about a few other aspects of late season hunting. Number one uh, being our dogs and uh, and dog care. If you're out there hunting hunting grouse with uh, with with pointing dogs, flushing dogs, that sort of thing, uh, late season sort of brings on a whole uh, extra set of uh, elements and and things that we've got to deal with with our dogs, whether it be their paws or you know, just the the cold temperatures, that kind of stuff. What uh, what are the things that we need to be thinking about when it comes to our dogs? Um, treat them like a sled dog is what I would suggest, and I know that's probably just everyone's like fact. But <laughs> but you have some experience with sled dogs that you can expound upon. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and it's not so much feeding them like a sled dog, but treating them like a sled dog and also looking at thinking about yourself a little bit. If you come out of the woods wet and cold, what do you want? Warmth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, let's just say that the heater was out of your vehicle and you crawl in and you're wet and cold. Do you think about how stiff you're going to be when you crawl back out of your vehicle when you get home. Yeah. That is something to think about. So and I've got nothing wrong with dog boxes and things in the back of trucks as long as they can really protect a dog from the cold and that they stay wrong, stay, stay, you know, stay warm. But the other thing, too, is, you know, the dog size needs to fit the size of the box. Because yeah. if you force that dog to curl into a super tight ball, they stiffen up. Um, one of the things that I learned from uh, running sled dogs, and I did a lot of competitive racing both in the U.S. and Canada in, in sprint, and is that the care that I put into my dogs after the race made all the difference in the next day when I raced. So I'd run my class, come back, take care of my dogs, and get them prepped the next day. Now, it's even more so with distance racing. I mean, that's a whole, like, major level because distance racing, a lot of them are running six six hours on, six hours off, six hours on, six hours off. And like in the long distance racing, those dogs are covering 100 plus miles a day in some of the big, big time races. And what, what they do is when they get their dog back to where the checkpoint or the truck or whatever, I typically grab the liniment. There's a mushing liniment that I use, uh, and I massage their shoulders long that long muscle that runs from the shoulder down to the elbow and you massage it and with the liniment and that helps work the liniment in and you do both sides and I massage really deep like doing a deep tissue massage then the next thing I do it's called a half jacket the half jacket has pockets in it the half jacket is made of fleece thick fleece and it's got pockets on the inside that jacket's going to, they put their front legs in the two holes in the front, and then mm-hmm. they, basically it comes partway back on their waist. Well, I put hand warmers in each of those pockets. And one goes, one hand warmer goes behind the back, that long uh, muscle that runs from the shoulder. One goes in front of it. Another one might go around the chest area. And then it repeats on the other side. You let your dogs cool down slowly, not fast. Um, the other thing is, like with older dogs, you might see some of the older dogs have um, they have uh, swelling on the joints. Um, I'll use the same liniment, massage the joints and everything, and I'll use what's called a wrist wrap. Analogy would be is when... Say you pick a chainsaw up and you go out and cut a whole bunch of wood. You haven't been doing this or whatever. And as we get older, we see more of this in ourselves is that, we, you know, if I go grab a chainsaw and I, you know, and cut a bunch of wood, the next morning, how do I wake up? My hands are in, especially the ones, you know, are they're turned in. Yeah. And And when you straighten them back out, you stretch that ligament. And that's what a lot of times when you sleep, you wear 
what do we wear? We put like a wrist wrap thing on our hands. Well, they had the same thing for dogs made out of either a thick fleece cloth or actually a neoprene. So you put the liniment on there. And when a dog sleeps and they're sore, those paws come back in. Mm-hmm. But by keeping the paw, the legs straight, and it's not hurting them or anything like that, but it keeps it, that neoprene holds the heat in, lets the liniment come, you know, penetrate into the joints and all that. And the next morning, they're not limping. Um, and then the last thing I'll do, you know, if, it, if it's cold, I'll put I'll put a fleece jacket on. Um, when I was guiding a lot, and this was my last year for guiding, the only way that, you know, when you have day after day after day of this, and you have a certain number of dogs, and say you get, you know, sometimes you're wondering, well, Christ, I just, this dog is out for two days, this dog's okay, but this dog, this dog can go, but this one, you know, you're trying to juggle performance between dogs and the yeah. length of the hunt. Wherever we stop for, for a break, and my breaks were at restaurants because I wanted to put the dogs in the backseat of my vehicle <coughs> with wrist wraps on, shoulder, shoulder warmers on, and a jacket. And those dogs would get up 45 minutes later or whatever from the end. I'd take them out, and they acted like nothing happened. Yeah. And you take care of them, and they can continue to perform. And, you know, that's one of the things. I'm a real strong believer in taking care of the dogs that way. Um, and then the other thing is, is that, uh, um, you know, you got to watch the snow and the hair between their paws. Uh, you know, trim that hair between the webbing and get that. You know, and if it's really frozen hard, don't have toenails too 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 short or too long. If they're too short, they can get abrasion uh, behind the toenail into the pad. Check their feet more often. I mean, we check them. You know, in the in the uh, fall. But you got to remember, when they hit things underneath that snow or on a hard, frozen surface like a logging road or whatever, there's nothing giving, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty pretty rough uh, for them. But let them cool down slow and take care of them. Feed them about an hour later, you know, because their appetite will be still good. And, you know... And don't make them jump up on the back of the tailgate because it's going to be slippery and they're tired because pushing through that snow and the brush and everything, you know, it's one thing to go through the brush, but it's another thing to add six to eight inches of snow on top of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing, too, is if you have dew claws on a dog and you're going to put booties on them, put some cotton ball under the dew claw, uh, take some surgical tape, and uh, make it, and make sure the nail, of course, of the dew claws uh, trimmed, because where you cinch up the booties many times, if you don't have a cotton ball underneath the dew claw, it'll actually bite the dew claw nail into the leg. So. Yep, yeah, I could, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but you really got to pay attention to where that where that booty is is coming down, and yeah, you're probably better off safe than sorry there. Mind, mind that dew claw for sure. Right. Right, and then probably the only thing is if you do use booties, once they get wet or if they get a hole in them, you know, 
Although if you get a hole in it, it's unbelievable how quick they can fill up with powdery snow. If they get mm-hmm. wet, it's just, you know, you're, it's like abrasive, abrasive at that point for the dog. So, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the big thing. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, we, you know, we ask, we ask our dogs to do, we don't really have to ask them. It's, you know, usually they, they do it, they do it for themselves and for us, but we, you know, we ask them to do a lot. I think most people understand that. And so when we're talking about taking care of the dogs, it's, you know, it's really the least thing that we can do is make sure that, that they're, they're being watched over and they're, they're cared for when they're, when they're finished hunting and, and, checked over and make sure you do those tailgate checks and obviously yeah you know pay attention to your dog maybe watch the body language and and make sure nothing's bothering him and and do what you can to to you know be preventative and and obviously reactive if you need to but uh yeah it's that cold weather it's got to be they're not wearing they're not wearing boots and wool socks that's for sure so the, uh, <laughs> or, or a hat <laughs> yeah or a hat or gloves or anything so uh certainly some extra precautions there that that uh you need to pay attention to absolutely yeah it never hurts to baby them after a hunt <laughs> yeah i've yeah. I've, found, I've found that <laughs> certainly yeah, if, if you had looked at my my vehicle, sometimes there was four or five dogs all stretched out, looking like they're sunning themselves back there with jackets and everything on them. Yeah, their hand warmers and their warmer packs. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, a, that's a care for well, dog team. They're they're very content. <laughs> yep. Good. Good. That's good. That's. I uh, I certainly aim for that with my dog, and uh, and I think uh, I think most of us bird hunters do, but but certainly certainly something to think about. Um, let's see. I'm looking at my list here. We talked about temperature. We didn't talk. We didn't talk a ton about uh, snow depth and type. Um, certainly, that snow depth is going to affect the dog's ability to get through the woods, and and for me, really, the snow depth is kind of what what ends the season for me once it gets to a certain point where my dog and I aren't, aren't working the cover like I want to, that's kind of mm-hmm. it for me. And I'm okay with, I'm okay with that. I'm sure there's other people that hunt longer than me and, and I'm sure there's others that quit sooner than me. But what are you looking at when, when you're paying attention to that snow depth and then the type of snow? Um, I like, okay, maybe I'm a wuss. I don't know. But I've also, <laughs> I've also had some knee surgery. So I like to see where I'm putting my feet. Um, yeah. That's a big thing for me. Now, there's other people that are different. And, you yeah. know, I think without without the knee surgery, you know, if I had a graft done, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't think about it that much. But this deeper the snow is, of course, the harder it is to get through it. And um, the other thing, too, is, you know, it's even higher on your dog because the angle of going over things changes and they have no idea what they're hitting underneath it. And that's when you get major shoulder injuries. And, and uh, you know, those are the things that, you know, if you keep repeating shoulder injuries, they can come back and haunt a dog late in life and it just becomes a chronic issue. Uh, so a lot of it, just what you're saying, either bitter, bitter cold or snow depth, you know, that that those two things are you know I like four to six inches 
or less. Um, yep. That's just yep. my personal preference. The other thing, too, is that it gets crusty. Um, yeah, the birds can walk all over on it. But that's that type of snow that becomes abrasive, and you put your hand down underneath it, uh, on it and rub it, and it just, you know, it's, it's you feel like you can get a rug burn off of some of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, not pleasant. No, not pleasant, but think about what it does if it packs between the pads and the webbing of the dog's feet and they're running. Yeah. And, the, you know, the big, the more those feet splay out, the more that they take a chance of getting what's called fissures. And that's all, like a slice that forms from the packed snow when they run. It's in between the webbing and they keep running and eventually it, it there's a slice in there. And those are hard to heal up because, like, on a sprint race, we never wanted to booty because we'd lose X number of miles per hour. And we also wanted to maintain as close as we could to a 20-mile-an-hour speed. And if we bootied, we knew we were going to lose it. So you're always feeling the snow and saying, man, can I run it or can't I? Because if you run it and the snow is crusty, especially like if you're the first one to go out and shoot and run, there's a crust on that snow, and you come in, your whole team was torn up, you know, because they ran so hard. That, that could be in eight miles or six miles or whatever, but that whole team would be torn up. And you know what? It's about impossible to get that healed up in one week. Um, it's really a tough deal. And I mean, part of the problem is if you get fishers with a hunting dog or with a sled dog or whatever, that area is moist under there. It holds heat, and it's and it's hard to get healed up because it's a moist, warm environment. I'm not saying they're going to get infections, but you're going to see a dog want to lick, 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 and you'll start to see the fur turn like a brownish color, brownish, yeah. reddish color, because they're licking so much. So you got to think about, you know, and I don't think it's real. I mean, I've seen dogs feet swell up some from this, uh, you know, where someone has run them just way too much. for their... I never believed in racing a dog or, or even running the dog in the woods if I think it's going to tear them up. There's yeah. a time to hang, hang everything up, whether it be the gun and the dog and all that, you know, we're done for the winter or even the sled dog, you just don't race. So it's, it, you got to look at the conditions and what is it going to do to your dog because it's going to be doing way more work than what you are doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially, I mean, I mean, they do that anyways, but but in the winter time for sure. And I, I you mentioned the, you know, when you get that snow, it, it covers up the forest floor. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I'm sure you've been there. I, I'm sure others have been there. I, I I look at my dog running through grouse cover and. You know, and in October, and I, I'm thinking to myself, how in the heck is he navigating this cover, making the decisions yeah. on how to navigate these obstacles at such a fast pace? You know, it's it's amazing that they can even do it. But then think about, you know, that same amount of driving that dog with everything covered up. I mean, he's bound to okay. they're they are bound to run into logs and and just get beat up. And yeah, it's the oh. snow depth for sure is is going to affect that and i mean i guess for me if i was really dead set on going out and doing some late season hunting I, and there was a deep snow i would i would 
maybe take some snowshoes and just leave my dog at home and just go for a walk in the woods and maybe maybe hopefully step on a grouse in a snow roost or something but yeah it's the ability of me and my dogs to hunt the way that we want to is is kind of the determining factor there and right. I guess the important thing right. important thing for people to remember is yeah pay attention to that stuff and don't send your don't send you or your dog into something that's you know not going to be worth it or it's going to put you in harm's way that kind of thing yeah, I agree. I mean, you just do right by the dog because really you're the only um, thing that sort of holds them back is by the the decisions that you make. They'll go, but you got to yeah. have sense about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I had a couple other things written down here. Um, we talked a little bit about winter logging, and you mentioned – you know, if if people are going to be hunting this area, meaning the Great Lakes, be it Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, you know, the loggers are out there. They're going to start to get out there as as things as the swamps freeze up and that sort of thing. What uh, what what should we be paying attention to as far as that goes? Um, well, winter logging is probably the peak of activity for logging um, because everything's frozen up. Um, of the three states, I would say Minnesota more than even Michigan and Wisconsin because Minnesota has a lot more wetland areas and, and it has yeah. some of those areas that maybe you want to get back to a cut. And obviously you drive along the road and you're thinking, wasn't there a marsh there? And it looks <laughs> like now there's a freeway. Well, what they've done is they'll freeze those areas in you know, you get the snowpack on top of it, you get really icy, and they'll run the bulldozer over. And if you take the snow off and the chattering of the tracks, even like across, across a bog or something like that, uh, you can freeze it in. I mean, there's actually some roads here that you can still see the old trails in the swamps where they used to be a long time ago, frozen in with horses. Uh, wow. Same thing up in Michigan and other places. But... You've got to be aware of these trucks because, like, in Wisconsin and in Minnesota, it's roughly 80,000 pounds that they're, is their payload. Michigan, um, you know, that's 80,000 with the, I shouldn't say payload, but 80,000 with the truck and the load combined. And yeah. in Michigan, it's 160. So. Wow. You need to, as you go back on a road, look for the, Telltale signs of, you know, basically you've got dual tires and where there might be a lot of activity. Um, never hurts to have your window cracked a little bit. And if you're in a hilly area, you'll hear the jake brakes before you will see the truck. Make sure. sure you get far enough off and don't park on a corner where they're coming around and all of a sudden there's a, there's a vehicle there. Um, try to make it on more of a straight shot so they'll see you a long ways off. Um, listen for the, you know, especially quiet in the woods in the wintertime, noise goes a long ways. But listen for them and don't expect them to be able to stop on a dime. Um, yeah. They're out there working. And so it's basically how many loads I can get in. And, you know, majority of them all are very polite. Uh, but you need to remember you're also in their world. Um, so watch for active logging areas and be ready to take evasive action. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's something that that doesn't get mentioned a lot, and it's important to to sort of call attention to it because again, yeah, we're out there recreating, we're we're bird hunting, and and these guys are on the job, and not only are they on the job, but they're they're doing exactly what we need them to do to to help right. the future of of our hunting. So, I mean, personally, I try to. I try to be as you know over the top respectful as I can, and give them all the room they need. I'll you know I'll, I'll avoid them if I know they're logging somewhere. I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to try my hardest to find somewhere that's just somewhere else. Uh, you know, unless I'm really trying to trying to bump into one of them and, and get a few hot tips on on where the birds are. But but again, like you said, most of the guys that I've talked to very very polite, always willing to say, oh yeah, I saw some birds down the road there. And, and you know they're they're great guys to talk to, but again, yeah, very important. Give them the space and and uh, and the clearance that they need because they're doing a job and they're doing an important one for sure. Yeah, and most times they'll go into you know during midweek it's full bore, um, and then also during you might get though it might most of the yards are closed on. Well, some of the yards are closed on Saturday morning. But, you know, a lot of them are closed. Uh, they'll get that load, so they're set up to deliver a load Monday morning, and then they start making the rotation. Uh, so typically Sunday is usually pretty quiet, but you'll get someone all of a sudden that, well, I need to get loaded up for tomorrow morning. Uh, but there'll be less happening typically on Saturday and Sunday than there will midweek. Um, and uh, be careful around those decks because they're not stable. Uh, they may look like they're stable, but, you know, it's, uh, it can be a real dangerous place. Um, I used to run a log yard up in Michigan and I, you know, it's unbelievable how quick everything can come falling down. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we've, we've covered a lot of topics. Is there anything else that, uh, be it birds, dogs, habitat, what uh, anything else that that you think we should talk about as far as late season grouse hunting? Trapping. Trapping. Okay. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Trapping season's kicking in for sure. Big concern, obviously, with uh, with uh, bird dogs in the woods, obviously. So yeah, what do we need to pay attention to? And we'll we'll I'll, I'll, I guess I'll preface this by saying that, of course, each state is different. They've all got different seasons and regulations. Right. So. So we'll put that on the on the hunter to pay attention to that stuff. But but from your experience, what uh, what are you looking for out there? I'm looking. Okay, so we've talked about the logging part, but I'm looking for a place where there's someone that's constantly going back almost every day back into a certain area, and a lot of times um, just to see if someone's running a trap line. Um, and take notice if you see someone coming out of the woods with a pack on their back, they're more than likely mm-hmm. just trapped. Um, I carry a rope, a small rope with me, so that let's say the dog got caught in a foothold, I can very quickly, you know, noose the mouth up and, you know, basically restrain the dog and then get trap off of them. Uh, Connor bear traps are really dangerous. Um, and I think you need to be listening, you know, for where your dog is at all the time. But you can't get there fast enough, really. I mean, you can, but still, you're trying to go through brush and you're trying to find where something's set. So what you're looking for is activity 
or you're even looking for that dog to all of a sudden act weird. Like, what what am I smelling? And they might stick their nose out and draw it back and stick it out and draw it back. It's like, what the heck is this? So you need to watch for something, uh, sort of a weird reaction. And then look for footprints. If the footprints are in the same place all the time, that means someone's coming in and out. They could be going to a deer blind, but they could also be setting traps. And you don't mess with those traps. You know, the only time I'd mess with a trap is if my dog was in it. Right. Um, You know, but look for the pattern of activity that repeats itself over and over where someone has been there. And then if your dog acts weird or whatever, carry carry a rope uh, with you, um, you know, so you can, you know, take care of the dog. Familiarize yourself on how to open any of these traps. You know, if you go to a um, sports store, you know, and they're going to have kind of air, they're going to have long springs, um, they're going to have the different traps, have someone show you how they work, you know. And, you know, basically there are tools that you can get that you can carry with you that, you know, can help basically pry the traps open. Um, but knowing how the traps operate are huge, and uh, that's that's a big thing. But look for activity that is consistent almost every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent agree on the understanding the traps for sure. I, I mean, I still don't, I, I probably don't completely understand them, but I, as soon as I got my dog, I obviously paid attention to that, and I, I am fortunate enough to be at a couple of places, uh, some RGS events where I saw, uh, you know, a trap release seminars. And so that was really helpful. And, uh, I've, I've, I've done a little bit of trapping myself, some Martin trapping here in Minnesota. And so I've gotten familiar with the, with conibear traps and I carry, uh, one of the tools that you mentioned. Um, I forget the name of it. I might be able to put a link somewhere, but it's, uh, it's a it's really neat actually it's a it's a it's a smaller trap setter than what a than what a trapper is probably going to carry but it's a it's a lightweight aluminum um trap setting tool that fits right in the back pocket of my uh, wingworks vest and I've never had okay. to use it but but it's there along with uh, along with a, right. a small rope and a lead that you mentioned and and uh if if I ever had to I I think I could could uh probably get my dog out of a trap and uh you know it's just a matter of like you said it's it's if it gets in the wrong trap how long does it take you to get there and you know stuff we don't want to think about obviously but be prepared be prepared understand how they work and uh understand what you might have to do to get your dog out of one for sure right yeah it's you wait too long for that dog to grow up to be where it is you know and then have it all change quickly but they also need to remember, I mean, it's really easy if something like that happens to think, you know, we're not the only ones in the woods, you know, yes. and the same thing, with, same thing with deer hunters. They wait all season for this, you know, if they yep. be it rifle season or whatever, give them the space that they need. Um, so you know, that's just food for thought. Yep, yep, I'm I'm with you there. I uh I I'm a deer hunter myself. I uh I will I'll be out this coming weekend in Minnesota. I I skipped uh I skipped opener in Minnesota this year to to head over to Wisconsin and do some more grouse hunting and I was happy I did cuz 
I've, there's still some areas over here where there's no snow, and so I uh, I had a had a great little hunt on Sunday. But again, I, yeah, the, when when the deer hunters are in the woods, you know, me being once maybe I'm biased, but yeah, give them the space. It's it's a lot of people wait a long time, long time to do this, and uh, you know, I I I, I, I wouldn't want to see somebody's dog run by my deer stand just because I I wouldn't want them to be. You know, I'd I'd hate to even see that dog running through an area where there's a bunch of deer hunters out there. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's good I mean, good good things to think about this time of year. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sometimes you can't, especially early season when they're bow hunting. It seems like you don't mean to have it happen, but it does. Especially if you're going cross country and you come back out in a different area, you know, hit the road in a different spot or whatever. Yeah, you'll run into stuff, and then I just make a mental note never to go back there the rest of the season because you don't want to mess someone's place up. You know, no, but it, no. unfortunately it happens. But rifle season, it, it's not a good time to be in the woods. Yeah, no, no, I, I, uh, I am in agreement with you on that. Well, uh, well, we didn't even, and we didn't even really talk about about Northwind maps, but I think we kind of did that on purpose because I'm gonna, we're gonna have you on the podcast again for sure to talk about that stuff. I've been uh, been using your Northwind maps for the last couple seasons and really enjoy them, and uh, I will probably talk about them a little bit in the intro to this podcast, but. Um, I think we talked about quite a bit. Uh, any uh, any parting notes or thoughts for the for the late season grouse hunting podcast? Well, um, you need to know where the pines are. You need to know where the cover is because they never go that far from where you were hunting in the fall. So if, yeah. you know by knowing where these are. I like to look at my maps and basically I make a junction of where habitat comes together and then where habitat comes together with the, um, you know, better aspen and if I know there's hazel brush there and then conifers and then some hardwood. Um, when all that comes together, it's a place to at least go look um, and see, you know, if you could find some birds in those areas. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, things to things to consider. And uh, if people uh, if people have have questions about about Northwind maps, be it uh, be it the printed maps, the PDF versions, the GPS chips, or the uh, uh, the Scout and Hunt subscription, which which I'm currently using and really 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 enjoy, um, where's the best place for them to to go and find that information? Uh, www dot northwind without the i dot com or they can yep. give us a call you know we're more than happy to help people and explain our products to them and we get a lot of calls you know just even about you know where should I hunt you know what am right. I looking for at this time of year you know we're only a phone call away and we're happy to help you because every area is different just because we hunt this way in you know up north things can be different in different parts of the you know, in the country of what other people hunt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, uh, had the good pleasure of hunting with some people that, that hunt, uh, out east and, and, and out west even too, actually, in, in state of Washington. Some, some just totally different, totally different, uh, than, than what we're used to here in the Great Lakes states. And obviously things to consider, uh, you know, 
the how this information when we talk about aspen you know and what we're really talking about oftentimes is stem density and structural diversity how does that stuff apply to the covers that you hunt and the habitat that you have available to you yep and there's always you know the grouse is a grouse no matter where it is it still needs a certain amount of density and it needs that protection and it needs the same but maybe under a different name or a different, you know, what the, than what we're looking at here, it still needs food, cover, shelter, protection. You know, and some of those, you know, what I mentioned there, they sort of overlap each other, but they need that ha- specific habitat in order to, you know, survive throughout the year. Yep. Okay, Ann. Well, I think uh, I think we'll call it a wrap on the uh, the late season grouse hunting podcast. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it, and we will uh, we'll look forward to to having you on again in the near future. So I guess we'll use that as a as a chance to anybody listening to this podcast. If you have uh, ideas or suggestions for what uh, we should talk about next time, Ann's on. Uh, don't don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear about that and. Uh, yeah, I think we'll leave it there. And thanks, uh, thanks very much for joining us tonight. You're very welcome. I hope you have a good deer hunting season. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I'll uh, hopefully, hopefully, some success, and then hopefully, I can quickly turn around and get back out into the into the bird woods and put some of this new information <laughs> to use for me. <laughs> well, thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Yep, anytime, man. Appreciate it. You have a great night. You too. Take care. Take care. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.